Deadwood Soundwell. Hi, welcome to Living With Your Dog. I'm Charlotte Peltz, Certified Dog Behavior Consultant. We try to cover lots of different subjects on this program, and we always welcome your ideas. If we've missed a subject that you think be, needs to be addressed, you know, let us know, and Nate will tell you how to do that. To get your questions to us, just email livingwithyourdog at gmail.com. That's livingwithyourdog at gmail.com. And also, you can find Living With Your Dog on Facebook. Living with your dog, living with your dog, living with your dog with Charlotte. Okay. Um, this is from Dr. Patricia McConnell. Anybody who listens regularly know I think she's just fabulous. And she says, sorry, but the earth needs us to talk about dog poop. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. And so it goes on, we poop, we poop. This was enthusiastically said by your friend, eyes shining and face flushed with victory as if she just won the national finals. Turns out her dog is the kind who has trouble doing his business when distracted by the excitement of a sheepdog trial and had finally produced. If you're reading this post, you get it. Dogs are mammals and mammals excrete waste in liquid and solid form. Some mammals, people included, care deeply about when and where this happens. Thus, Jim and I have a twice-daily poop report. Maggie pooped, but Skip, Skip didn't. I'll take him out later, tonight, before we go to bed. No doubt you have your own versions. <laughs> it should also be said that most of us find this topic aversive, and for good reason. But having a dog means dealing with it, so I'm hoping you'll keep reading. Toward that end, I'm front-loading some positive reinforcement. It turns out that writing about this topic leads to more rabbit holes than imaginable. And while some of them are yucky, some of them are great. Here's my favorite, which I strongly suggest you listen to while reading the rest. I did the same while writing this until I started dancing and then couldn't write anymore. <laughs> so there's a link there. Okay. I was motivated to write after reading about environmental problems related to dogs and dogs poop. According to some sources, dogs deposit about 10 million tons of poop every year in the United States. Oh. And just a tiny amount of dog poop is capable of closing down a local beach for weeks. The fact is that pet waste is a serious pollutant, not only adding dangerous bacteria to waterways, hello, toxoplasmosis and giardiasis, but also decreasing available oxygen and creating dangerous algae blooms, killing fish, and ironically, sometimes dogs. So what do we do? Every site I found focusing on this issue begged us to save the environment, to pick up our dog's poop in plastic bags. Wait, did they Wait. say plastic? Yeah. That stuff that is killing animals everywhere? Okay, taking a breath here. <laughs> if this stresses you as much as it does me, it might be a good time for another bit of oh poop. Okay, what are our options? First, it's clear that we really, really need to pick up poop. No matter where you are, it's going to work its way into the water system eventually. Of course, some areas are more at risk than others, but I don't think I need to enroll readers in the importance of taking care of a business. But what is the best way to do that? One way to help is to pay attention to the bags we use. 
at minimum, at least we can use bags that are made with recycled plastic. But, and it was in capital letters, I'm not yelling, but I am raising my voice here. <laughs> I couldn't find out how much is actually recycled. And most importantly, all that plastic is still going to go somewhere eventually. Mm-hmm. Not to mention that the Pogi brand, for example, which advertises itself as earth friendly, in quotes, is made in China. And I'm not a fan of shipping something that simple from that far away. Even better, we can use bags that are not made of plastic at all. I found Earth Friendly Tips to be the most helpful site in sorting out our options. I just ordered their top choice in bio bags. We'll see how they work out. Factors to consider include where they are made and what they mean by biodegradable. Unless they have a good ASTM rating, it might take years for them to truly biodegrade. Of course, then my mind goes to the question, if the bags degrade, then doesn't the poop still end up in the water? Mm-hmm. Presumably, that is why we've, we're advised to make sure that the poop ends up either in a landfill or a toilet that leads to a sewer system, areas developed to keep bad things out of the water system, or should be. If you're at home, you have options besides putting poop into bags, no matter what they are made of. We use a scooper here at the farm if the dogs go close to the house, which all goes into a bucket that is then taken to the dump and buried in a landfill eventually. If you're not on a septic system, you can use bags that will flush down your toilet that degrade as soon as they hit water. Check with your local utilities. Not all systems can handle dog or cat waste. Anyone use these? It turns out I could write for days about this topic, but there are dogs to work in a garden to weed, so I'm stopping here. <laughs> I hope this has given you some ideas and some resources and inspires you to let us know other solutions that you are aware of. I found it easy to gather information online about this topic, including practical information from One Green Planet's site that includes ideas about home digesters. Anyone ever use one in their own yard? Note they apparently don't work under 40 degrees Fahrenheit, so they are out for winters in Wisconsin. If you continue down this path, I wrote in March of 2015 an all about poop post that talks about teaching dogs to eliminate in a specific area and the importance of picking up any piles you see when out in public, no matter whether it's from your dog or not. Jim and I always carry extra bags and pick up droppings when we can. That's in part because we're trying to be citizens of the earth and in part because we selfishly don't want others to ruin it for the rest of us and get dogs banned for public areas. In closing, I'll leave you with a question that has bugged me for decades. What do dogs think we do with all that poop? Mm-hmm. Stash it away to eat at hard times? <laughs> <laughs> That's our Patricia McConnell, all right. What a thought to leave us on. My goodness. <laughs> she's just too great i tell you it's really sunday it really is (laughs) that's a good point though i mean it's not something that we like to talk about but it needs to be talked about i didn't even think about that yeah it's anywhere it's left out it's gonna end up in the water system just because that's how the cycle of life works that's right and it's and it's just it's so upsetting to be walking along and encounter one of these great big piles that somebody has been you know, out with their dog and did not clean up. It's just, 
please, please, please clean up. It's just and I, and so I've noticed that more often people are cleaning up after their dogs. And even in like parks and, and trails and stuff like that, there's little like stands of bags for for you to yeah i think that i think but they're always plastic bags yeah i hadn't thought about that either right um and i'm sure that that's in part because if you you know a paper bag is if it's pretty moist stuff and it is it's going to seep right through into your hands and nobody wants that to happen so so it's you know, it's a toss up. It's it's a it's a tough problem, but we really have to pick up. No question about it. And she said something about the it's the dog poop is a serious pollutant, 10 million tons a year. And she said something about algae blooms. Now, dog poop is not the reason for algae blooms in the in the water being t- contaminated. Yeah, I don't I don't know about that. I think that you know, our algae bloom is something totally different in this right. river. Right. That it's um, the stagnant water that that because it's not moving, the algae can reproduce right. well. But it, whatever she's meant by that, I didn't try to investigate it. Okay. But it's it's an interesting question. It could be that in enclosed areas, like if your own small pond on your property, kind of thing that it could mm. contribute. <clears throat> I don't know. That that makes sense. And even if it is a public river, it's dog poop in the river is not going to help the algae bloom. No, it's not going to help, it's not gonna help anything. No. And and it is a pollutant. I mean it definitely is a pollutant. And you know, and then we're back to talking about what happens when the dogs are being fed commercial dog food, the amount of excrement produced is drastically more than when it's a raw diet fed dog. There's so much that's not as well digested. So the dogs produce much more excrement when they're fed dry dog food. Holy cow. Really? Absolutely. Because it's a bunch of crap that their body doesn't need. So they extrude it. They can't, they can't digest it. That's right. And, and there's a difference in aroma. I mean, raw diet fed dogs excrement has very little odor to it. You can walk right up to it and step on it and you don't smell it. Not (laughs) true with that other stuff. Wow. Not true at all. Huge difference. But it's, again, a dramatic, very evident example of the digestibility. Yeah. Of real food compared to that other stuff. And not only that, going back to the pollutant, that stuff the poo from the dry dog feed, I'm sure, is far more can has far more contaminants in it than a I raw. Think so fed. it makes sense to me. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Wow. Why wouldn't it? I mean, let's be serious. You know. Uh, okay. <laughs> and speaking of that kind of food, this is from Susan Fixton. FDA issues a corporate-wide warning letter to Midwestern pet food seven months late. Oh, boy. It took seven months, but FDA finally calls Midwestern pet food out on their many violations. That's how much protection we get from them. So she says, today, and this was August 17th, the FDA issued the following. This is a quote. FDA issues a corporate-wide warning letter to company associated with contaminated pet food hundreds of adverse events, 
end of quote. The FDA warning letter comes seven months after recalls issued by Midwestern Pet Food. The FDA warning letter announcement shared, a quote here, after inspecting Midwestern's Chickasha plant, the FDA also inspected the company's three other manufacturing plants. These inspections revealed evidence of significant violations of the current good manufacturing practice, hazard analysis, and risk-based preventative controls for food for animals regulation, end of quote. The warning letter stated FDA performed inspections at the four Midwestern pet food manufacturing facilities and found, quote, evidence of significant violations, end quote, to required preventative controls in all four pet food plants. The FDA inspection found Midwestern pet food, quote, begins, failed to follow proper sample preparation procedures outlined in the aflatoxin test kit manufacturer's recommended procedure for mycotoxin testing, which led to potentially inaccurate analyses and test results for sampled products, end of quote. The FDA inspections also found that positive salmonella testing was found on multiple products known as positive by Midwestern Pet Food, yet the company released the products into retail sale, ignoring test results. The warning letter allows Midwestern, Midwestern Pet Food 15 days to respond to FDA's concerns, stating to the pet food, quote, this letter notifies you of our concerns and provides you an opportunity to address them. Failure to adequately address this matter may lead to legal action, including without limitation, seizure, and injunction, end of quote. Personal opinion, she says. The FDA warning letter is a step in the right direction. However, it is months late. The announcement of the warning letter also appeared to show how concerned FDA is about protecting our pets. And this is a quote. We'll continue to hold companies accountable and protect animal health as a core element of the FDA's public health mission, end of quote. However, yeah. (laughs) However, to remind pet owners, this entire Midwestern pet foods deadly disaster was discovered by pet owners, not FDA. <laughs> After pets died, pet owners had the pet foods tested and provided those results to the regulatory. Pet owners are also who held are also who held companies accountable for pentobarbital contamination. The actions taken by two pet owners in 2017 and 2018 resulted in more than 92 million pounds of pentobarbital contaminated pet food to be recalled. Pet owners and attorneys are who is holding pet food companies accountable, not FDA. Pet owners truly want FDA to hold companies accountable and to protect our pets' health. Unfortunately, a warning seven months after more than 100 pets died doesn't seem to hold anyone accountable for their actions. Swift, serious consequences is accountability. Months after our pets die due to contaminated food is too late. Where's the prevention? And another thing about the pentobarbital, there was a quote on something else I read recently. that said, oh, it's unavoidable to prevent pentobarbital from getting into the food. Pentobarbital is the drug used to euthanize animals. The pet food industry, the laws are, and they are obviously not enforced, that the food, that the, the animals that are to be used in dog food 
should be slaughtered for that purpose. Not, not drugged to death, slaughtered for that purpose. So it is preventable to have pentobarbital in the dogs, in the food that we feed the dogs and cats. And also suggests what kinds of animals have been given the pentobarbital. Other pets, horses, what animals have been given that to put them to sleep, to die, it goes into the dog food. That's true. You're not going to find it in nature. You're not, not going to find it in nature. And we're talking in terms of what animals are likely to be put to sleep. Okay. Yeah. Pets. Horses. Horses. Pets. So yeah. it's without a question of a doubt that euthanized dogs and cats go into pet food. Uh, people. <clears throat> people. Yeah. I was uh, getting excited there for a second um, when the, when <laughs> this article from Susan Thixton was talking about the FDA was actually doing something and holding people accountable. But just a letter we will send and, you a letter. That's not very holding accountable ish. And they didn't find the, those problems. People found the problems and reported it to FDA. That is a good point. Yes, the only reason FDA got up off their butts is because two owners made a stink. Right. And wow. it's probably and, one too. I mean, it's and it took six months for them to, to notify anybody. <clears throat> <laughs> Unbelievable. Yeah, it's it's just it's so disturbing to realize we cannot trust those people that are being paid to take care of us. <clears throat> yeah. We can't. No. Wow. Okay. So how about this from whole dog journal? What does appropriate play look like? Owners often have difficulty distinguishing between appropriate and inappropriate play. Some may think that perfectly acceptable play behavior is bullying because it involves growling, biting, and apparently thinning the playmate to the ground. Appropriate play can, in fact, look and sound quite ferocious. The difference is in the response of the playmate. If both dogs appear to be having a good time and no one's getting hurt, it's usually fine to allow the play to continue. Thwarting your dog's need to play by stopping him every time he engages another dog, even if it's rough play, can lead to other behavior problems. Hmm. With a bully, the playmate clearly does not enjoy the interaction. The softer dog may offer multiple appeasement and deference signals that are largely or totally ignored by the canine bully. The harassment continues or escalates. Anytime one play partner is obviously not having a good time, it's wise to intervene. A traumatic play experience can damage the softer dog's confidence and potentially induce a lifelong fear aggression or reactive rover response. Definitely not a good thing. Some bullies seem to spring from the box full-blown, meaning there could be a genetic element behind this kind of personality. However, there can certainly be a learned component of any bullying behavior. As Gene Donaldson reminds us, 
and she's the word when it comes to dog behavior, <laughs> the act of harassing a non-consenting dog is in and of itself reinforcing for bullies. By definition, yeah. a behavior that's reinforced continues or increases, hence the importance of intervening with a bully at the earliest possible moment, rather than letting the behavior become more and more ingrained through reinforcement. As with most behavior modification, prognosis is brightest if the dog is young, if he hasn't had much chance to practice the unwanted behavior, and if he's been, um, been and not, I mean, he's not been repeatedly successful at it. To learn more about aggressive behavior and ways to modify it, you can get the ebook, The Aggressive Dog from the Whole Dog Journal. And this is really important because the, the roughhousing that can come from accepted play maneuvers can be very alarming to people. But if they're doing an exchange, one dog is doing the aggressive stuff and then they switch. And very often the play will be, in, the interaction will be interrupted with play bows, which is a signal, a word that says, now keep in mind, whatever I do after this, I'm playing. Please remember, <laughs> this is play. And the play bow is the signal that says it's play. Now, if your dog is not having a good time doing that, what are the signs you could watch for? The dog may not interact, may not reverse the roles, may try to get behind your legs or under the chair. These are all signals that the dog has, the other dog has gone too far. And you cannot allow that to happen either to your dog, the dog that's on the receiving end of the bullying, or for the bully to begin to continue to practice it. And that's what happens with behaviors that we don't like. If we don't interrupt them, they practice it and they get better at it. That's why actors do with their signs and their lines, they practice and they get better at it. So the more you prevent a behavior from becoming um, a practice behavior, the better the chances are. So what can you do? Now, sometimes dogs can be playing very nicely together and it does just then get a little too rough. There seems to be a kind of fine line between play, activity, roughhousing, and aggression. And that's a time when it's just fine to step in and say, okay, guys, take your time, chill out. And then you can let them go back and play again. And they'll probably be just fine, but you want to prevent it. And that's watching the signs that the dog on the receiving end is not having fun, is not exchanging my turn now thing. So you have to watch this. You have to supervise it. Another thing that's I think a very important note is when you have two dogs that are playing, have no collars on them, no mm. collars at all. Why? Because one of the places that they grab is around the neck. They can get a tooth, canine tooth caught in that, in that collar and all hell can break loose. They can be twisted and they can, the dog that's wearing the collar that gets twisted strangles the other dog is panicked because he can't get free. So no collars on interactive playing dogs just doesn't make sense. Okay. That makes sense. I mean, it doesn't make sense. It makes sense that it doesn't make sense. Huh. Uh -huh. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's very important because it, it does, it does in fact happen yeah. that, that dogs can actually die as a result of being on the end of the twisted collar. 
I can think of all sorts of things that can happen. Like you said, teeth issues. Um, The dog is so traumatized that it never wants to play anymore. That's right. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, because stuff like that sticks in dogs. It's amazing how long a dog can be affected by one little uh, negative interaction. Yeah. A single learning experience. And there's a name for it. And I've forgotten what it is. But it's a dramatic event can cause a lifetime of behavior reaction. Yeah, totally. I just can't. <clears throat> you really can. Okay, so there are dogs. There are some dogs that are bullies. It seems to be the case. If Jean Donaldson says it, that's got to be true. I mean, <laughs> I, whatever she says, I'm going to. I mean, it. it makes sense. There's all sorts of, of personalities. <laughs> of course, yes. And you know, and within, there's yeah, with even a, within a litter of puppies, there are going to be differences in their personalities. Now that's true. Now back in my day when I was a child, we raised a whole bunch of different litters, and yeah, the litters always have the bully, the weak one, the yeah. the uh, the rambunctious one, the shy one. Right. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's pretty cool to think about. So how would I'd like you to to give us an example, another example of two dogs playing. One dog has had enough, but I don't want to. I don't want to negatively affect the dog that is being overly. I'm not going to say aggressive because I I don't like that term because dogs aren't aren't. I don't like that label. But when a dog goes over steps over his bounds. And you want to stop it without causing the traumatic experience. Well, in part, and reinforcing the bad behavior. Yeah. It's just in part how you personally handle it. Are you going to get, oh my God, stop? Oh, no, no, no. Right. You just go over and say, okay, guys, that's enough. You can, you can have, especially if there are two dogs and they belong to two different people, each of you can go over and get your dog's attention, toss some treats, do something to break it up so that there's no trauma involved right. and give them a time out to catch their breath and they can start all over again. And it's, it's important because you don't want them, you're right, you don't want to scare them you don't want to create yeah. a problem from a problem. Right. You are trying to solve a problem. So you want to do it with calmness. And that's why it's so important to continue to observe the behavior so that you don't get them to that point where it's really bad news. So if they've been playing really wildly for five or 10 minutes, even if you haven't seen anything that's worrisome to you, it's probably a good idea to take a break. Yeah, let's go get a drink of water, guys. Come on, fellas. Prevention. Stop it before it escalates. Yeah, yeah. It's a good idea, you know. And I think that if you know how dogs play together, in general, it's not going to, routinely, it isn't something that they want to do for a long period of time. It takes a lot of energy to play like that. <laughs> it does. And and so if, if they're continuing to do it, they're probably overly aroused. Right. And it's a good idea to stop it. And your your reluctance to use the word aggression is excellent because aggression, aggressive behavior, doesn't say mean that a dog is an aggressive dog. Exactly. It's an issue of an aggressive behavior. And almost, not quite, but almost all aggression is fear-based. Right. An exception would be a bitch with her puppies. Mm that she would be aggressively protecting them if she felt there was a need to do that. Yeah, it's still based on fear, though, a fear of her her puppies getting hurt. 
it's, 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 yeah, okay, it's kind it's of stretching it. I don't think she's afraid <laughs> for her puppies. She's definitely protecting her puppies. Okay. And I think that's different. Now, something along these lines is, let's say you're in the market for a puppy. And you discover these people that have the breed of your choice. And you're going to go see the puppies. And the dam, the bitch, will not let you near them. Turn around and walk away. Hmm. You do not want to have those puppies learning from mom that don't come near me. And that they have to remove her from the litter for you to touch the puppies. You want mom teaching them that good people are welcome. Hmm. That's a good lesson from mom. Wow. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, right from the get-go. Right from the get-go, because we're talking in terms of that kind of demonstrative behavior is probably something those puppies were learning in the womb hmm. when she was reacting to the environment around her. Yes. Wow. And so we do have genetic issues, but we there's a, you know, there's a, a way, in, I mean, it's very difficult to separate completely what's genetic and what's environmental. They're like, they're tied together on too many levels. Super. So it's, it's very important. And if, you know, if, if the, the people with the dog said, well, no, she's not going to let you near them. Uh, I think you need to look someplace else. For that. <laughs> then I don't want to go near them. <laughs> I don't want to go near them. No, I don't think that's what I want to do. For sure. Okay. So what I've, I've seen this a lot, and I'm sure you have too. When two dogs are playing, one gets a little snippy or bully-ish and the other dog will put it in its place and snap back or something like that. And then yes. go back to playing. Yes. And that's true. There, it's very often the case that one of the dogs will definitely respond saying enough of that already. Right. But what we're talking in terms of is if the dog on the receiving end of the rambunctious behavior doesn't do that and wants out of the picture, it's up to you to remove one of the dogs from the scene. Save, save your dog from the interaction, remove the bullying dog for that dog to have a chance to settle down and possibly conduct himself or herself um, more politely after a rest period. Ah, it's a, it's a teaching, a teaching option, a teaching time. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. All right. I have one more question for you before we head off to a different topic. How do you get to Carnegie hall? What practice? Oh, I see. <laughs> Talking about the root there. <laughs> I don't know how to get there from here. <laughs> practice, practice, practice. Yes, yes, absolutely, for sure. Living with your dog, living with your dog, living with your dog with Charlotte. And and that means being on the alert end of things, being aware. Yeah. Our dogs watch us very well, very carefully, and we are inclined to just ignore them unless there's something they are doing that we want them to continue or stop doing. And we don't pay much attention when they're being good dogs. And it's, it's mm. what I really try to get people stop talking in terms of, I don't want dogs. Don't do don't <laughs> you have to focus on what you like. And every time you see it, you reinforce it. And the reinforcement is going to vary. It can be a pet. It can be 
and not on the top of the head, please. <laughs> it can be a, a scratch. It can be what a good dog. It can be a treat. It can go for a walk. It can go for a ride in the car. It's something that the dog will remember associated with that behavior and be willing to repeat it. That's what reinforcement is about. Dogs don't do don't. Thanks, dogs don't do don't. Okay. <laughs> How about chew habits? Anybody that's ever had a puppy knows that puppy chew. They chew to learn about the world. They chew because their mouths hurt from teething. They chew because they're dogs. And chewing doesn't die in puppyhood. It continues throughout life if dogs are given the opportunity for good chewing things. For example, Angie certainly doesn't chew on anything other than bones, but she certainly loves those bones. And for her, the favorite bone is a pork shoulder bone. I tell you, uh, she really loves those. Okay, so this is from Pat Miller. She is a certified behavior consultant. She's a lot more than that. She's an author. She's a, um, uh, got seven books out there. And she gives seminars and training clinics. And she has a, a training school to train people to be trainers. Okay. Well, puppies develop substrate preferences for elimination in the early months of their lives. And they similarly develop two object preferences. Hence the advisability of giving the inadvisability of giving your old shoes or socks to them as chew toys. If you give your baby dog the run of the house and he learns to chew on oriental carpets, sofa cushions, and coffee table legs, you will probably end up with a dog who chooses to exercise his jaws and teeth on inappropriate objects for years to come. You'll find yourself creating him frequently, even as an adult dog, or worse, exiling him to a lonely life in the backyard where he can chew only on lawn furniture, loose fence boards, <laughs> and the edges of your deck and hot tub. Instead, focus your dog's fangs on approved chew toys at an early age and manage him well to prevent access to your stuff. In this way, he'll learn house privileges much sooner in life. By the end of his first year, he'll probably be, you'll probably be able to leave him alone safely while you go out to dinner or shopping, or even while you're away at work. As long as he still snags the occasional shoe, knickknack, or other off-limits possession for a midday gnaw, it's too soon to give your dog unfettered freedom. When you're home, he needs to always be under your uh, direct supervision. You may need to keep him on a leash <clears throat> or a tether, or simply close the door of the room you're in so he's shut in with you and can't wander into the parlor to shred your grandmother's antique lace doily while your back is turned. If you're otherwise too occupied to supervise, put him in his crate or exercise pen to keep him out of trouble. At the same time, supply him with legal chew objects to keep his needle-sharp puppy teeth appropriately occupied. Stuffed kongs, buster cubes, Busy buddies are just a few of the many interactive toys available that can keep your dog's teeth and mind acceptably busy. If you consistently supply him with desirable and acceptable chew objects, he'll eventually develop, develop a strong preference for chewing on those same objects. He will seek those items out when he feels the need to gnaw, and ultimately your personal possessions will be safe even when your back is turned. And for more details and advice, 
advice on ways to prevent and cure destructive chewing habits, you can purchase the whole dog journals ebook, Simple Ways to Prevent and Cure Destructive Chewing. She doesn't mention real bones, but uh, I, no surprise to anybody who listens to this program, I'm a huge fan of real bones, but I am very much against what people seem to think are the correct bones, and those are the marrow bones. Those are weight-bearing bones, and they are not raw, meaty bones. There's nothing in the way of meat on them. They are strong. They're, they're very strong bones, and the dogs cannot really chew on them the way they can on a bone that they can actually get bits and pieces off of it and truly eat it. For puppies, frozen chicken feet are a great source, and they can eat those. That's a great way to go. I certainly, can, and Angie continues to get two frozen chicken feet after, after dinner, and uh, that's just her dessert. But for puppies, it's, it's more than that. It's fun to work on and to chew on. And frozen is helpful, just like we used to chill teething rings for our babies. Right. And it's, it's, for, it's, for, it's very good for them. But real bones, I think, are a very important part of good, healthy chewing as well as nutrition. And, it, and when you're talking in terms of getting, getting switching or, or having a raw diet for your dog, it doesn't mean just putting some raw meat in a bowl. They've got to get that calcium requirement from someplace. And the very best way is bones that they can actually eat. So for those of you may have, may have very small dogs like a chihuahua, um, you can afford to buy chicken wings. I would, if I did buy chicken wings as a chew bone, I would cut off some of the meat because our chicken grow very fast in a short period of time. And there's way too much meat on those bones for them to be able to, the meat can be part of a dinner, but the bone just has enough meat on it to keep it interesting. So what about the skin? Chicken skin is really high in cholesterol and stuff like that. Well, if you're talking the chicken feet, that's not a case. If you're right. talking a chicken wing, that's not that much. Okay. I won't feed chicken necks because of the skin on them. Okay. Uh, turkey necks come without the skin. And I would really like to feed her chicken necks, but it's just too much of a bother to get the skin off of them. And it's a waste of money. I mean, you have to buy when you pay for the chicken neck, you're paying for the chicken skin and, and it's pulling that off all off is, is, is wasteful. So she doesn't get chicken necks. Now, if I were to purchase a whole chicken for myself and it had the neck and the giblets inside, I'd probably just give it to her because it's not a, something that she'd get very often. And it wouldn't matter that that extra fat on a given day, because fat is, of course, an important part of the diet. So, right. yeah. It's and so are organs, as we've said. Oh, yes, organs are vitally important. They have to have them at least weekly, at least weekly, and that's really important. The one that's that the organ meat that's easiest for people to get is beef heart, and I'm a big fan of beef heart, no question about it. You can find that most of the time, I see it in the local market in the meat department in, in fresh liver. You almost never see it. I think if you ask, you may find it in the freezer beef liver. You're certainly not. I've, I've never seen pork liver. Chicken livers are there. Uh, that's um, available. 
And when it comes to kidneys, you really have to seek out someplace special for that. The Redway Redwood Meat Company up in Eureka um, has a lot of options, including um, an organ meat package hmm. uh, food that that you can buy. I think so. It's, it's got all sorts of, of different organs in there. All sorts of different organs, and it's mixed up, so you're not looking at pieces that you can recognize, which is just fine for me. And so when we are giving organ meat once a week to our dogs, just like the other dog, just like the other stuff we're feeding our dogs, we want to um, uh, mix it up. Right. So not always the beef heart, do some liver, do some kidneys. Right. Okay. Yeah. And if, if you are really strapped for space and you can't get one of those big packages from the Redwood Meat Company, that probably the best you can do is beef heart and maybe chicken livers that are convenient from the standpoint of local shopping. Right. Uh, it's not ideal, but it's okay. And I think it's at least weekly that they should be getting organs. No question about it. Look at us going off on the raw food tangent again, <laughs> but getting back to this uh, chewing habits article by Pat Miller. We love Pat Miller. <laughs> she mentioned legal chews. Did I hear that right? Legal chews, meaning chew toys that you can buy, you know, so there's, there's, there's something called a Buddha bone, which I don't recommend their nylon. Uh, and I, I, it worries me that the dog's, could bite off a piece of that. And it's very, very hard. No question about it. <clears throat> I don't like them. But um, Buddha makes a, a rope chew toy, which I think is great. It's a very tightly woven rope with tassels at each end, uh, like in a bone shape or in a rope length. And mm-hmm. with the, the smaller ones with your your teething puppies you can soak it in chicken broth and freeze it and oh my goodness they're happy as can be with that <laughs> so there imagine. there are there are uh chew and there are greenies now i've never i've never purchased and nor fed greenies i understand that they are healthy uh, i'm inclined to be very careful and certainly nothing from china nothing 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 from china um i mentioned one before that when i was up in oregon i I saw an advertisement for a local market that had um, duck pieces that were dog treats. And I thought that would be interesting. I'd never given her anything like that. Hmm. So I went in and I wanted to see where it came from. And I'll tell you, it took some sleuthing way down at the bottom in the tiniest print possible made in China. And I didn't buy it. There had been too many problems of serious illnesses and deaths from treats that have come from China for the dogs. And they may have cleaned their act up, but I'm not going to take a chance. Not going to. (laughs) I can see you now in the supermarket with a big old magnifying glass. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's very interesting that, that these companies can, can write things so small that even with glasses, it's difficult to read. 
they, hey. they, know what they're, they know what they're doing. Yeah, we printed it on the package. Yeah, right. Mm. right. Huh? <laughs> okay, so going back, one more thing with the chewing. Um, I want to retouch on the getting them started with their chosen chew toy or, or uh, offering options for chew toys early when they're a puppy <laughs> so that they don't grow up and like your shoes. Right. If they never have access to anything that is inappropriate for chewing, they, once they get past that investigative puppy stage, the chances are slim and none that they're going to suddenly start chewing on the, the legs of the, the table or your shoes or socks. Mm -hmm. So it's th those early introductions. <clears throat> and I must say that since I learned this, the last adult dog I had never, I never had anything chewed. Never. That wasn't supposed to be chewed. You know, never. Mm -hmm. right. I remember once with Moxie, who was my Bouvier before Zagal, and I, and I had been very careful with him. And I can remember sitting on the sofa, talking on the telephone, thinking, what am I, is that sound I'm hearing? Right at my foot, he was chewing on the table leg. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> well, there he was. Oh, wow. And there was the table leg. And, you know, it was just so convenient to put that big old Bouvier mouth around it. Okay, well. And so when that happens, when you find your dog chewing on the furniture or chewing on your shoe, you probably don't want to freak out because wouldn't that be reinforcing the oh, bad it chewing? Could, it could be that the dog would get a lot of attention for it and say, whoopee, I can hardly wait till I do that again. Right. So it's going to be one thing that you would want to do if you could was find a tastier treat and distract the dog with the treat. So instead of chewing on the table leg, there was a tasty treat to chew on and then you could distract the dog from going back to the table leg. So you're not punishing the dog for doing it because it was your fault that the dog was chewing on the leg. The dog just did what was coming naturally. You were not watching and you just want to get the redirect the dog to something that's appropriate rather than exciting the dog about what he was just doing and have the dog misinterpret and think pretty, I can hardly wait to do that again. <clears throat> so I just thought of something and, and tell me if you agree, I like to keep things as simple as possible. I like to boil things down and try to explain them in the simplest ways. And when it comes to positive dog training, would it be correct that I could just say in every circumstance, don't yell, just distract. Or maybe not I just change their I, mind, right? Yeah, I, I think that's a that's a, a very good approach. Um, it may, I, I can't think of a situation in which you would not want to at least distract them. So it's good. Yeah, because because you know when when I when I throw these different circumstances at you, you know you're always give them a treat or you know get their get their attention off of whatever it is they're doing, right. mm -hmm. and and you know we never yell because that could reinforce it because we're getting uppity and that's attention for the dog. So yeah, don't yell, just change their mind. I, I will say this. I have yelled. Okay. There are going to be times when a yell is likely to happen. So there you are. And you see your dog just about ready to grab the roast off of the counter. I'm going to yell. Yeah. I am going to, I don't think there's any way I'm not going to yell. Okay. 
I, I'm pretty sure that I'm going to scare the who is this out of that dog by me yelling because it isn't something I regularly do. Right. So have I ever yelled? Yes. Then I go back to training. So there are times when our reaction to the situation is not a plan. <laughs> it's just a reaction. And it's not training. It's a reaction. And then we train. Yeah. Um, so there are, okay. there are times when we're likely to do something dramatic that we would not present in a training program. Forgive yourself. You're a human. Okay. And, <laughs> okay. And However, when it comes to the dog, and so the dog jumps up on the table to get our roast, and we freak out and yell. And so... Is would that reinforce the dog to do it again, or would that scare the dog enough to go, holy crap, I don't want to do that again? We would hope it would be the second one. Right. That we would have frightened the dog enough to not do that. Now, if the dog was had been able to get a bit of that roast before, that would be a different story. Oh, yeah. We stopped the behavior with a shock. And again, personality of the dog. I mean, it's, it's, we have dogs that are super sensitive. And if you just raise your voice a little bit, they would cower. Mm -hmm. And other dogs that are saying, what's your problem? Why are you talking (laughs) like that? (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. Do you have something you want to say to me? You know, (laughs) so we have, we have dogs that react very differently to different situations. And, you know, if you ever rehome a dog, you don't know for sure what negative experiences that dog may have had in its life. And you want to really proceed as cautiously as possible. You know, for example, when I got Angie, I didn't want to groom her, cut her nails, do anything to her that I was afraid she didn't like, and she associated it with me. So initially I, I took her to a groomer and boy, her, she was scrambling her feet when I left, you know, that she didn't want to stay there at that groomer. Yeah, let but the groomer I, be the bad guy. Let the groomer <laughs> be the bad guy. And it turned out she didn't do anything wrong. She was perfectly quiet and calm the entire time. But I didn't want to take a chance on doing something to her as her new family member that was negative and she would associate me with it. As it turns out, I can groom her. She doesn't like to be up on the grooming table. She doesn't show any serious signs of tension. She puts up with it. It's just the way (laughs) it is to be a schnauzer. Uh, And she's very happy to get off of the table. But there's no resistance. There's no trembling. There's Mm -hmm. no, I wish I had be someplace else, any place but here right now. It's like, all right, here we go again. Because I give her treats and I talk with her and I try and keep it as you know, at a minimum in time. So she's she permits me to do these things that I didn't have a negative association with to start with. So yeah, I developed a relationship with, with her before I tried doing any of those things to her. That she could trust me before I tried doing something that I knew would be invasive and unpleasant. That makes a whole lot of sense. 
because uh, because like we said before, those traumatic experiences stick with dogs and can yeah. totally change their mentality for the rest of their life. Absolutely. There are there are single um, single issue learning experiences that uh, they'll never forget. And and you can't be the one to judge which which they will be. And you don't really know when you're making that effect either until it occurs again. Yeah. Uh-huh. Right. <clears throat> wow. We really got to know our dogs, pay attention to our dogs. And that's Absolutely. why that's why we love all of this information that you give us every week, Charlotte. And boy, I looking at my notes here, I got two pages of notes. This was an, again, <laughs> a, a lot of information. We started off uh, from Patricia McConnell <laughs> and her article, The World Needs Us to Talk About Dog Poop. <laughs> gotta, uh, love, gotta love Dr. McConnell. Just gotta love her. <laughs> right? And it, that makes a lot of sense. Dog poop can get in, can be a huge environmental problem. Um, it's a pollutant and it can get into the water system. So that is a huge reason why we need to pick up after our dogs. And as Charlotte mentioned, the dog feces is a whole lot smellier and bigger and nastier when it's that dry dog feed because they're they're getting rid of all the stuff that they didn't need, which is most of that whatever's in that dog feed. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but pick right. up after your dog. Um, and another thing I hadn't thought about is, yes, a lot of people use little teeny plastic bags to pick up the dog feces. Well, there are places that you can go to find earth-friendly dog bags, uh, bio bags, I think they're called. Um, one of the places you can go is Earth-Friendly Tips. Was that correct? Earth-Friendly Tips uh-huh. and One Green Planet. Next up from Susan Thixton and the FDA gave a seven-month late corporate-wide warning to a company that, again, had some contaminants in their dog food and was violating law. But again, the FDA did a little something, but all too late. A lot of dogs died because of that nasty dog feed. As Charlotte asked, where's the prevention? Next up from the Whole Dog Journal, what does appropriate play look like? Uh, their Dogs can be bullies. And so you want to pay attention when your dog is playing with other dogs uh, pay attention to that play bow. Make sure both of them are doing the play bow. Make sure both of the dogs or all of the dogs involved are taking turns being the, I'll, I'll say, aggressor, the, the bully. Um, but pay attention. Uh, again, negative effects can have lifelong uh, issues with your dog. Uh, ooh, this is really good. Pay attention when they are being good. Mm-hmm. Reinforce mm-hmm. what you like and what they are doing well. Again, dogs do not do don't. And then last but not least from Pat Miller, chewing habits. Dogs are chewers. They're going to chew all their life. And to prevent them from chewing on the furniture or your shoes, offer them proper chewing objects early in life and instill in them the good things to chew on. And remember, no weight-bearing bones and always raw bones bones are good for your dogs only if they're raw all right charlotte 
Before we head out, do you have any last words for us? Yeah, I, I would like to, a little bit of a correction. When you're talking Please. about dollars playing and you mentioned bullying, there's no bullying when it's a real prop positive interaction of play. There's no bullying. There's one that's taking the leadership role and the other one that's, that's you know, uh, on the other end of it, and then they switch. I'm glad you corrected that. Uh, I was, uh, as I said earlier, I didn't want to use the word aggressive. So I right. used it's bully, not aggression. But it's 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 lots it's, of noisy playfulness, and it can be <laughs> misinterpreted as aggression because totally. they're they're mouthing and their mouths are open and they're growling and you know and, and there's saliva everywhere and and then they they look like they're happy with it and what's going on, folks? Okay, <laughs> and what's that all Pay about? Pay attention. Yep. All right. Last word for the day. No one appreciates the very special genius of your conversation as the dog does. Christopher Morley. <laughs> All right. Living with your dog, living with your dog, living with your dog with Charlotte. Isn't that cool? Check out all the content brought to you by Redwood Sound Labs. Listen to the new show that will help you live a better life with your beloved pets. It handles topics like proper food, nutrition, positive reinforcement training, and more. Certified dog behavior consultant Charlotte Peltz welcomes your pet concerns and questions in Living With Your Dog. Zach and Matt are two veteran horror movie enthusiasts discussing their favorite and not-so-favorite films. Spoilers abound, so scary movie fans beware. Watch No Evil. Charles is a Purple Heart recipient and cinematographer. Aaron is a professor and critical cultural scholar. Together, they explore the narrative, effective, and production politics of war cinema on the Real War Project. That's R-E-E-L, War Project. You can find all these shows wherever you find podcasts.